0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week, we welcome Dr. Richard Besser, CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and former CDC director on the latest COVID strategies and call for an equity-centered revamp of the CDC.
1: We as an institution are looking to see what does it take to dismantle those systems that create the barriers to health, from racism and other forms of discrimination.
0: Factcheck.org's Lori Robertson checks in and we end with a bright idea. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter.
2: The new year begins with unsettling news. There's a highly immune, evasive Omicron variant. It's called XBB, and it's quickly becoming dominant in the United States. And about 75% of confirmed cases are reported to be XBB.
3: Joining us to discuss this latest chapter in the COVID pandemic is Dr. Richard Besser, the president and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He's been a leading
2: authority throughout COVID. He's a former acting director at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Well, Dr. Besser, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare and Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year to both of you. It's, uh, it's really great to be here. Thank you. Well, Thank you, you know,
2: your expertise in the pandemic includes your leadership at CDC during the uh, H1N1 pandemic. What's your latest thinking about this new COVID variant?
1: As, as a nation, and I think as a globe, we are ready to move on from, from COVID. Uh, COVID isn't ready to move on from us. It's really challenging. You know, Early on in a public health crisis, everyone's attention is, is focused on doing everything they can to reduce the impact. People are focused on doing what needs to be done. Um, We're at a very different place in this pandemic now where any thought of broad government uh, interventions and mandates around behavior uh, is a non-starter, yet the the virus itself is still uh, charting an unknown course.
3: Well, right before the holidays, you and other experts were sounding the alarm about the potential for hospitals being overrun with the triple-demic threat, Uh, the patients with RSV or COVID and the flu, uh, a lot of them children. What's the situation looking like right now on a national basis?
1: So you know, I'm, an, I'm a general pediatrician and, and RSV is something that we would see every, every winter, uh, but it wasn't something that, that we really talked about as much as uh, being a threat to the elderly, uh, adults with underlying medical conditions. And now we're in a situation where uh, you have uh, RSV, the respiratory syncytial virus, we have influenza and, and we, have, we have COVID. Um, if you look at the overarching map, uh, you see a situation where uh, the color is is, is not good. Uh, it's red in many different different places. Uh, I'm in New York City and the situation is red. And that's an indication that, that hospitals are, are being stretched. And that's a problem not just for people who have uh, a respiratory infection that needs to be taken care of, but it's a problem then for people who have other medical conditions. Uh, so it really is incumbent on all of us to do what we can to take the pressure off the healthcare system uh, to ensure that the services are there for those who truly need them. You know, China is
2: seeing a wave of COVID infections, I, I probably should say a tsunami. There's been reported at least that 9,000 people each day are dying of COVID in China. And, and the US has imposed a coronavirus test requirement on travelers. From China, I'm wondering if is this a little too late when COVID is in every country in in the globe? What's your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, you know, I I, I think sometimes uh, these kinds of measures are are more for for show than they are for truly controlling a public health threat. Uh, I remember back in 2009 when. Uh, H1N1 was just starting to uh, emerge. Uh, there were uh, large numbers of people hospitalized in Mexico, and but H1N1 was already in the United States. Mm-hmm. And there was a big call to shut the border down. And the mathematical modeling showed that it would be very ineffective. We're in a situation now where 300 people or more are dying every day in the United States from, from covid I don't think that testing requirements on people coming in is going to have uh, any real effect on what we're seeing uh, uh, across the nation. It is useful for people to know if they have COVID so they can get appropriate, appropriate treatment and take appropriate measures. But it's not like you're trying to prevent a, a big bump in the United States. Uh, or, or if you are, that's not the way that's going to do it.
3: Dr. Besser, it's a very important role the foundation plays in the country. It's the nation's largest philanthropy dedicated solely to health. Uh, And I understand that one of the roles that the foundation chose to play during these last three years of COVID uh, included keeping an eye on and developing a database of state policies that were enacted specifically in response to the pandemic. Of all of these individual states creating all of their policies, are we moving towards a more coherent public health response?
1: What became clear to to us at the foundation during the pandemic and uh, following the murder of George Floyd and the the call for racial justice in America was the really disparate impact of this pandemic on people of color, on low income communities, on people in rural communities. And what it led us to do as a foundation uh, was to really focus in on, on issues of health equity. And you know who in America truly has a, a fair opportunity for health, and and who does not. Uh, and it's led us as, as as an institution to pursue our vision of a of a culture of health in a different way. When we talk about a culture of health in America, we want to recognize that health isn't something that's given to you by your healthcare provider. It's something that is a result of what takes place in the communities in which we live and work, where our kids go to school and play. Uh, And across America, people's ability to lead a healthy life uh, is is not the same. Uh, I, uh, until recently, lived in Princeton, New Jersey, where life expectancy at at birth was 87 years. And I worked as a pediatrician in a federally qualified health center in in Trenton, uh, 14 miles away life expectancy at birth is 74 years. Uh, so there you have 14 miles, 13 year difference in life expectancy. Uh, what we saw during the pandemic was an amplification of that. And uh, it, it led us to raise the question of why is it that in America, the color of your skin or how much money you, you earn uh, is such a driver in terms of, of, of health? Uh, And we as an institution are looking to see what does it take to dismantle those systems that create the barriers to health uh, from racism and other forms of discrimination. And we recently put out a call really to the CDC uh, to center equity in everything it does as as our nation's leading public health institution. Because without that, uh, the next pandemic uh, will have the same outcome as, as this one. But if we don't uh, intentionally look at who has the greatest barriers, the disproportionate number of, of people of color who are in jobs that don't have health insurance, jobs that don't have sick leave or family medical leave, uh, the disproportionate of, uh, number of people of color who live in communities that lack access to high-quality health care facilities. If we don't address those issues, the next pandemic will have the same outcome as this one. And uh, that's that's not something we as a society should be willing to tolerate.
2: A couple of thoughts there, certainly on health equity and the barriers to health, and certainly one of them is access to affordable Uh, health insurance. And one of the benefits, I would say, that happened was the public health emergency declared by the president that really sort of allowed people to be on Medicaid. And that may come to an end. This could have a profound impact on the health equity, on, on the populations that the foundation is focused on. What's your thought about what Congress should be doing to address this issue, which could start to roll out as early as April of this year?
1: Yeah, Mark, we're the only wealthy nation that doesn't ensure that everyone has access to high quality, affordable, comprehensive health care. And what we're going to see with those changes in Medicaid policies uh, is a lot of people uh, who are on the edge, uh, falling off that edge, who currently have access to health care, won't have that. And, you know, the pandemic's not over. You want to ensure that everyone who has concerning symptoms is able to get in, be seen, be tested. Uh, Individuals who are at risk for severe disease have access to uh, the high-quality drugs that can reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. But, you know, I'm very concerned this last Congress didn't take this on uh, and make some of the the changes permanent in terms of expanding Medicaid coverage. Uh, I'm very concerned that states are going to be able to put in uh, more hurdles in terms of recertification as requirements to maintaining Medicaid coverage. That's going to mean a lot of people lose lose coverage as well. Um, there are many ways to to get to universal health care, um, but but as a nation, we have to agree that one's income shouldn't determine whether or not someone gets basic medical care, basic services. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, we want to really applaud the foundation's issue brief, uh, Centering Equity in the Nation's Public Health System. Uh, it said that CDC has to earn the trust of communities directly impacted by health and and it has to support community-based health infrastructure. What do you want that community health infrastructure to look like? What do you want the people leading and practicing in those systems to know and do. And I, I think it probably ties to this interface between public health, primary care, community health. I'd Love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I, I've worked in community health centers for, for over 30 years and have found it to be incredibly rewarding work. One of the big challenges is ensuring stable funding, ensuring access to uh, the same services, the same drugs, the same care that you would get at a facility where someone of higher income was more likely to be getting their care. And, and that's not, not the case. In our issue brief calling on centering equity in our public health system, we do call out the need for partnerships, for engendering trust. Uh, if you look back in the history of our nation, there are many reasons why our public health institutions are not trusted by, by many people across the country. They haven't warranted that trust. Public health uh, across its history provided not just disparate uh, services and care to communities of color, uh, but actual instances of experimentation in communities of color. And so uh, these institutions have to uh, warrant the trust. And that means a, a, a clear outreach, understanding the, the needs of people in communities, listening uh, in ways that, that we're not always so good at doing in government and making sure they're, they're, they're being addressed. Uh, the, the community health center system in the, in the United States is essential. And one of the areas we call out in our briefing has to do with data. And that means making sure that there's a modernization of all of our healthcare facilities to be able to transmit high quality data to the local, uh, state, and federal public health uh, system. What we saw during COVID is that uh, it took a long time to even detect what communities had needs that were being undermet, what populations were not being well served. And that's because there isn't an agreed upon set of data elements that should be collected. Um, I was at CDC for 13 years and we focused very heavily on, on health disparities. So looking at differences by, by race, by gender. Uh, but we didn't focus on health inequities. And the difference there is one is measuring a difference in, in, in outcomes. The other is saying okay well what's driving that what are the barriers to health what are the inequities that are leading to those differences in health outcome that we're seeing and if we're not able to to measure that you know that's looking at everything from from air quality in various communities distance to a healthcare care center uh, availability of of high paying jobs all of these factors that we know impact on 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 health have to be part of the equation that public health is looking at So we're moving away from this idea that health is all about my individual behaviors to one where health is an outcome of the systems, the structures, the environment in which I live.
2: Well, I want to pick up on the CDC, the thinking of public health institutions. Uh, We've had Dr. Walensky on. She's certainly doing a job of trying to reorganize it. And as you said, you focused more on wanting them to focus more on building a better system around equity, increasing basic data collections. I'm wondering if they're really meeting the standards there. And I'm not sure that Congress's $170 million for upgrading public health information is really going to do the job. The public health system seems to be woefully underfunded. What's your sense of where CDC stands now in terms of its effectiveness and uh, how the American people are viewing it?
1: Yeah, you know, CDC over its 70-year history uh, has really benefited from a high degree of trust from the American people, from people around the world. Uh, CDC is called in when there are health crises uh, everywhere. And what we saw during, during COVID was a real erosion in CDC standing in, in a lot of people's minds. And rebuilding that is very, very hard. I, I must say I'm pessimistic that mm-hmm. this Congress will give CDC uh, what it needs to be the public health agency we need it to be as a nation. And uh, without that, uh, it it means that our public health system will continue to deteriorate. What what you tend to see in in a public health cycle is a a public health crisis, which leads to a big bolus of of money, of one-time funding. Uh, that then goes away and the system uh, then atrophies. And you need stable long-term funding so that systems can be built and maintained. Uh, CDC passes through the vast majority of its money to state and local public health. And uh, without that, those systems will not be able to develop in the way that they, they need to develop. We also need from Congress new authorities for CDC. And I know that the appetite is not there. The appetite right now in in Congress is to investigate and and scold uh, at a time where uh, you want to investigate, understand what the big challenges are, and then then make the changes. CDC doesn't even have the authority to require states to report more than a handful of diseases. Uh, So, you know, the, the question kept coming up during the pandemic, why does CDC not have a good picture of what's going on the, uh, around the nation? Well, it's because CDC doesn't even have the authority to, to get that data and require that data. Um, CDC doesn't have the authority or the ability to move its staff to address uh, what may be a, a acute pressing public health issue. Uh, it's money comes in these little discrete buckets. Uh, and you can't take one person who may be working on tobacco control and say, Right now, we've got a big pandemic going on. We want to move these staff over. You can't do that, and those those kinds of things have to change if we want an agile, flexible, responsive public health agency.
3: I think uh, Dr. Besser that five uh, percent of the country's healthcare dollars get allocated uh, to public health and and preventing. The next crisis. And uh, I think Mark and I often said uh, that for the first time in the country, your average person in the street actually kind of had this idea that they know that you, you actually got things from public health in terms of uh, testing a vaccine and maybe became more aware of it. But public health infrastructure suffers from the same really terrible shortages of public health professionals. What's the foundation engaged in or working with now in terms of trying to make sure that the the staffing and the workforce of public health is there to do what you'd like it to do?
1: Well, in the policy brief that that we were talking about before, we we talk about the workforce we need as a as a, as a nation in, in in public health. Uh, it needs to be grounded in in principles of equity. Uh, you know, following the the national call for racial reckoning, uh, CDC and hundreds of public health agencies around the nation lifted up racism as a public health issue. But then, what should you do differently? One is developing the competencies to be able to identify ways in which structural racism and other forms of discrimination impact on people's health. Uh, it's ensuring that you're recruiting a, a public health workforce that is representative of our of our very diverse nation. Uh, it's ensuring that your leadership is lifting up these issues all of the time. And it's in, ensuring that you're measuring and holding people and systems uh, accountable. There's major interest in public health. When I talk to, to college presidents, university presidents, one of the most popular majors is epidemiology and public health, but we need to make sure that the resources are there to keep people growing and ensuring that we're, we're building the systems we need as a nation.
2: On the other side, and I think you've talked about this, sort of this politicalization of health starts with the U.S. response to COVID, right? And uh, now the Republicans control the House of Representatives. They're, they're calling for investigations into the origin of the virus. My sense though is they also want to look at Dr. Fauci. And I'm just wondering, where is common ground? (laughs) Because at the end of the day, it requires a bipartisan approach. What's a formula for success to try to bring people together?
1: When when I was at CDC for four years, I I ran emergency preparedness and, and, and response. And one of the things that was a success factor in any response was when there was bipartisan support. And that tended to be the norm. This is one of the first times that we've seen this kind of dramatic uh, politicization of a a public health response. And what we're seeing across the nation is is differences in in impact and outcome by political affiliation, and that's very concerning. I'm, I'm very concerned by how politicized public health has become during this pandemic. Uh, I don't think it's it's going to remain contained to COVID and the COVID response. We're starting to see around the nation uh, outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases. That vaccination is is solely a matter of personal choice is very dangerous. As, as a parent and a pediatrician, I know that one of the most important things things for health I ever did was ensuring that my patients were vaccinated yeah. and and on time. And now. Uh, you know, seeing dropping rates of of vaccination for childhood preventable diseases. Mm -hmm. We should be seeing outbreaks of measles in the United States, but I I worry we're gonna see a, a lot of outbreaks of vaccine preventable diseases because of all of the disinformation, information that's put out deliberately to undermine vaccination and other public health interventions. Very dangerous. I, I expect that what we're going to see is, is some coming back together uh, because they will not be limited to democratic uh, districts. Uh, we will see, I think, representatives who, who may have been less supportive of public health calling for more public health interventions as they see the impacts in their own areas. Mm-hmm.
3: I'm going to give you a chance to focus on maybe some bright spot uh, work that you're familiar with. The foundations uh, had a many year initiative now to promote a culture of health, uh, focusing on specific communities around the country where real headway uh, perhaps can be made in addressing uh, health and health equity. What are you learning?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've been focused on on helping to build a culture of health in America for, for more than a decade. And it's really trying to help Think about health in a much broader way. You know, our work at the foundation is very rewarding, and I'm encouraged every day by 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 what we see. I remember visiting a community in in Atlanta, uh, purpose built communities, uh, the East Lake section of Atlanta, which had been uh, one of the highest crime uh, areas in Atlanta, lowest graduation rates of uh, from from high school, and the community came together and said, this is not something we want to see. And an initiative to uh, build high quality uh, a mixed income housing, brought together the business community, the government sector, and, and community groups themselves to redefine what their community could, could look like. Uh, it led to uh, investment, and has totally transformed that neighborhood into one of the neighborhoods with the highest graduation rates, uh, the lowest unemployment rates, uh, and a really thriving uh, sense of community. And what it shows to to me is that when you think holistically about health, uh, and you all come together and you recognize that every family wants the same thing, uh, that you can have real impact on, on health in our nation. And that vision, that approach is something that can be applied everywhere.
2: Well, what a good note to end on when we all come together. Uh, Dr. Besser, thank you for all you and RWJF do for improving the health and well-being of all in America. And thank you to our audience for being here. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and can sign up for our email, updates at chcradio.com. Again, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. At Conversations
2: on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Laurie Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Laurie, what have you got for us this week?
4: Grant Wall, an American sports journalist, died of an aneurysm while covering the Soccer World Cup in Qatar. Wall collapsed during the quarterfinal match between Argentina and the Netherlands on December 9th, but his cause of death wasn't reported until five days later, after the New York City Medical Examiner's Office had performed an autopsy. In the meantime, social media accounts that spread vaccine misinformation shared posts suggesting that his death was caused by the COVID-19 vaccine, despite having no evidence to support that claim. Many of the posts refer to a long-standing but unfounded claim that the COVID-19 vaccines have been causing people to die suddenly. But there's no evidence that Wall died from a vaccine. Rather, his wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, wrote in a post on his Substack that Wall died from "quote the rupture of a slowly growing, undetected aortic aneurysm with hemopericardium." That's when blood accumulates in the sac surrounding the heart. Gounder wrote, no amount of CPR or shocks would have saved him. His death was unrelated to the vaccination status. The aorta, she said, is the large blood vessel coming out of your heart, and an aneurysm happens when a blood vessel balloons. If the wall of the vessel is particularly weakened, it can rupture, which is what happened to wall. According to the New York Times, doctors are looking into whether Wall may have had a genetic condition called Marfan syndrome, which can result in being tall and thin with long arms. The syndrome is a risk factor for aneurysms. Gounder told the Times that one reason for having the autopsy done in the United States to learn about how Wall died was to stop online rumors. Quote, I wanted to make sure the conspiracy theories about his death were put to rest. And that's my fact check for this week.
3: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Pregnancy-related deaths in the United States continue to outpace all other industrialized nations. According to recent data, the U.S. leads other high-income countries in maternal mortality, more than three to one. New Jersey is a state that ranks near the bottom of the maternal mortality list and has even more dramatic disparities. A woman of color there is seven times more likely to die in childbirth than her white counterparts. They've launched an innovative program to address this health crisis, the Maternal Infant Health Hub. It aims to get to the root of the problem, addressing rampant health disparities that lead to poor birth outcomes for women of color. And they're doing it by advancing the practice of midwifery across the state a practice that often leads to better outcomes for both mother and baby. We kept
5: coming back to the value of midwives. And really supporting midwives and particularly midwives of color. And so we've put together this maternal infant health hub discussing how do we advance the practice of midwifery? How do we attract more people to the profession? There's really a lack of understanding of what midwifery is as a profession. The the discussion of what a midwife is and, and what they do really, you know, has not been front and center. So just even getting a greater awareness of
3: that is really important. Linda Schwimmer is the president and CEO of the New Jersey Healthcare Quality Institute. The goal is to lay the groundwork to advance the practice of midwifery in New Jersey, giving midwives a bigger role in birthing hospitals and growing awareness and training to advance the practice across the state. As part of a multi-level approach, New Jersey has also launched a community doula program, training culturally relevant community health workers as birthing and postpartum support doulas, easing new mothers through the vulnerable phases of delivery and the often challenging phase of caring for a new infant. Schwimmer says that part of that training includes mental health first aid. Doulas
5: are not clinicians, but they really are support, community support and advocate for the pregnant individuals. And so having an awareness of mental health crises and what to do and how to stabilize the person that they're supporting and getting to to a provider is just you know that's a really important capability to have.
3: In a recent report by her team and the Burke Foundation, they determined that midwife-led births are associated with higher rates of exclusive breastfeeding, higher rates of vaginal births, and lower rates of maternal and neonatal mortality. They estimate that expanding a program like this across the nation would not only save lives, but could save over a billion dollars in costs related to poor maternal and infant health. A state-supported program that makes access to midwifery and doula care more widely available to vulnerable women giving birth, leading to better outcomes for mother and baby, leveraging existing tools that have been proven to yield better birthing results. Now that's a bright idea. I'm Martin Selle. And I'm Margaret Flinter.
0: Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCradio.com.